Well, can you imagine with the faith that is in this room what he can do? You and I on these Sunday mornings are on a journey and we are making our way through John's gospel and looking at those seven signs, those seven miracles. Of course, in those three and a half years, the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus, Jesus performed many, many miracles. But John records seven. And each of those signs are signs with significance. They, each of those miracles have a message. Those signs are pointing to something. Those miracles have a message for you and for me. And one of the things that you and I are discovering together with each of those miracles, Jesus is revealing more and more of himself. But I pray that we not only better understand him and who he is and how he does the miraculous, but I hope that in our study we also are reminded and maybe even with a greater sense believe that the same Jesus who performed those miracles 2,000 years ago, just as he walked on water, as he turned water into wine, as he reconnected muscle tissue and brought back to life dead nerves, that just as he did that 2,000 years ago, that Jesus still performs miracles today. So can you imagine with the faith that is in this room what he can do? So take your copy of God's Word with that in mind and find John chapter 6. John chapter number 6. There are, in fact, two miracles in John chapter 6. They are back-to-back. -back. John records these chronologically. These two miracles happen back-to-back. -back. Last Sunday, Pastor Josh, our college and young adult pastor, preached a dynamic and powerful message about the miracle in which Jesus took that little boy's lunch those little loaves, those little fish, and Jesus multiplied them. And the Bible says fed over 5,000 people, but the 5,000 were the men. We, we know that counting the women and counting the children, it could have been 10 to 15,000 people that Jesus multiplied that little boy's lunch and fed thousands upon thousands of people. As a result of this incredible miracle, the Bible tells us that the crowd wanted to make Jesus their king right then. As a matter of fact, if you have your copy of God's word, let me invite you to stand with me for the initial reading of the scripture. We read in verse number 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pause there for a second. The thousands of people witnessed this incredible miracle. And the Bible says they wanted to take him and make him king. Before you and I read the next verse, what we need to understand at this point is that this is a very real temptation 
for Jesus and the disciples. Jesus could avoid the cross and receive his crown right here at this moment. But Jesus knows this is not the will of the Father. This is not the plan. So he dismisses the crowd and he gives the disciples an assignment. It goes on to say in the next verse, and when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind that was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Can I encourage you, as I do each and every week, to take a pencil or a pen, something that you can write with, and I want you and I to walk through this particular passage of Scripture. The first thing that I want you to see, in fact, I actually wrote this little phrase in the margin of my Bible, but I wrote down the phrase, the stormy situation. There's this stormy situation. Of these seven signs, these seven miracles that you and I are studying together on these Sundays together, some of the miracles are just found in John's gospel. Some of them are in the other gospels. This particular miracle in which Jesus walks on water is found not just in John's gospel, but is also found in Matthew's gospel and found in Mark's gospel. Well, evidently, this mob wants to make Jesus king. So he dismisses the crowd. He tells the disciples to get in the boat and to make their way across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account in chapter 14, in verse 22, it says immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. So immediately after dispersing the crowd, he says to the disciples, get in the boat. He made the disciples get in the boat. They didn't want to get on, in the boat without Jesus. They, they wanted to stay with Jesus, but he made them. He says to them, no, you go. I need to go to the mountain. What did he do in the mountain? He prayed. But I also think that from the mountain, he not only prayed, but he watched the disciples. It could be that your translation actually renders that he compelled them. He made them. He forced them. They didn't want to go, but he made them go. The reason it's important for you and I to understand that is that Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus knew where they were headed. When they got into the boat and they began to make their way across the Sea of Galilee, the water was calm. The skies were clear. 
There, there are about 55 of us next month that are going to the Holy Land. We're actually going to get in a boat. We're going to go across the Sea of Galilee. Our tour guide is going to say that it's not uncommon for storms very quickly to come into the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus knew that in just a matter of time, in a matter of hours, they were going to be hit by a storm. And it was going to become dark, and they were going to become fearful, and they were going to become overwhelmed. And knowing that, Jesus sent them. Are you saying, Pastor, that Jesus intentionally sent them knowing they were going to encounter a storm? Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. Jesus sent them knowing that within just a matter of time, they were going to be overwhelmed with fear and overwhelmed with anxiety, and he sent them. Now, why would Jesus, who loved his disciples, why would Jesus do that? The only conclusion is that there was a lesson that they needed to learn. There was a lesson that they needed to learn that they could not learn in a season of calm or in a season of sunshine. But this lesson that Jesus wanted to teach them, it had to happen in a, a season of storm when the skies were dark and the boat was rocking. See, there are times, and, and I think this is probably true for you as I know it's true for me, there are times in which when I encounter a storm, it is a storm of my own doing. It because of a dumb decision I made, I caused the storm in my life. There have been multiple times that I have said, Alan, you are so stupid. Alan, you have brought this on yourself. Can I get a testimony? Anyone else here in the room created their own storms? There are some storms that we bring about ourselves. There are other storms that are thrust upon us. Storms of sorrow. Storms of, of discouragement. Storms of uh, financial storms. There are many different kinds of storms that we encounter that are thrust upon us that, that even as believers, the Lord allows us to, to go through, maybe in fact sends us into. There are some lessons that he wants us to learn. And friend, listen to me. There, are, there perhaps is a lesson that, that he wants you to learn that you're not going to learn in a season of calm or a season of sunshine, but it's when it's dark, and your boat is rocking. It's in that season that he can teach you. With the disciples, when they encountered the storm, they, they faced a threefold problem. One of the problems was the distance from shore. Matthew's account, again, Matthew in chapter 14, in verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from land. The other gospels, John tells us three to four miles. Here's what I want you to imagine. The Sea of Galilee, and we'll actually see this together for those of you that are going with us. The Sea of Galilee is about 10 miles across. 
In other words, when it was the most difficult, when it was the roughest for the disciples, they were in the middle. In other words, the gospels make it clear, and the reason they point this out is for us to understand that for them, when it was the most difficult, they couldn't go back. It would be useless to look back to try to return and go back. They had to continue to go forward. It could be that God has arranged it for you to be here this morning because of the storm that you are enduring, the storm that you are in maybe at this very moment. Listen, it does you no good. God doesn't want you to look back. God doesn't want you to try to, to avoid it. He doesn't want you to try to return. Listen, you must move forward. So one of the problems that they had was the distance from the shore. The second problem they had was the darkness of the night. Again, Matthew's account, chapter 14, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. The fourth watch. Late, late into the night. In fact, not too far before dawn when it's the darkest. Look up here. When it was the darkest. When they couldn't see. When your storm is the darkest. And you know you can't go back. There's a third problem. There's the distance There's the darkness, but there's also this direction of the wind. Again, Matthew's account tells us, and back in verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. They couldn't go back. That was not an option. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The wind was against them. John says they were frightened. They were overwhelmed. Why? Because they couldn't go back. The wind was against them so that as they're rowing and they're trying to go forward, the wind was against them. They were gaining no momentum. It was dark. It was too far. It was out of their control. And being dark... And out of control, they were overwhelmed. That's the reason all of the Gospels tell us they were frightened. Frightened. Maybe you know what that's like. To be in a storm, to be in a situation that is absolutely overwhelming and out of control. Before we move forward, I need to show you something that the Lord showed me about the middle of the week. It's Mark's account. In Mark's account, in chapter six, you may want to just write the reference in your notes. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not, say this word, understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Jesus gets in the boat, he calms the storm, but they didn't understand about the loaves. Pastor Josh taught it last week. He took that little boy's lunch 
Don't, don't you love it? If we, just give him, if we just give the Lord what we have, if we just give him what we have, then he'll do what he can do, and that's when the miracles take place. All, they, all, all the little boy could do was offer up his lunch, but when he did that, then Jesus did what he could do, and Jesus fed the multitude. In fact, he took that little bit of loaves and fish, and he multiplied it to where he fed 10, 12, 15,000 people. In fact, so much multiplication that there were leftovers. Do you remember how many baskets of leftovers? 12. How many disciples are there? Each of them got a takeout box. <laughs> the reason Mark's account says that after the storm was over and Jesus was with them, that they didn't understand and their hearts were hardened about the loaves is because of this. Each of the disciples had a basket of leftovers to remind them of his power and of his provision. Can you picture this? They're in the boat. Each of the disciples are in the boat, in the storm. And for each of them, between their feet, was a basket of leftovers. For each of the disciples, as they're trying to to row, and as they're trying to navigate the storm, each of, each of them had a reminder of the power of Jesus and that he provides. And that if they would have truly learned the lesson of the loaves, they would not have been overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Why? Because Jesus provides, and Jesus is powerful. And when you get that, when you understand that, here and here, there's no need to fear. So, number one, there's the stormy situation. Number two, there is the standing Savior. Matthew's account tells us that as it's the darkest and they're overwhelmed and anxious, frightened, out of their control. The waves are crashing in on them. I want you to picture in your mind that there, there, there's, the, uh, there, there's, the, there's the water in their faces. There's the wind in their faces. They have been fighting this for hours and the wind, they can't gain any ground because of the wind and the storm. And in the midst of this, as they're, as they're wiping their eyes and they're trying to, to row, somebody says, what is that? Matthew's account says that they, they saw a, a human-like figure and that in their, in their fear, they wonder, is that, is that a ghost? Who is that? What is that? but then they recognize that it's Jesus as he is walking toward them on the water. All three, Matthew, Mark, John, all three say the same thing. They quote exactly what Jesus said. It is I, don't be afraid. It is I, 
Don't be afraid. You ought to underline that phrase in your Bible because it's crucial. It's so very important that we understand this, exactly what Jesus said. Now, we kind of miss it in the English. It is I. Until you understand the Greek, when Jesus translated in English, it is I, it's actually two Greek words, ego, imai. Ego, imai. I am. I am. Do not be afraid. You say, well, Pastor Allen, what's the big deal? I am. Turn over a couple of pages to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, but he said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and yet you've seen Abraham? But Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, say it with me, I am. (laughs) So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They lost their minds when Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Who do you think you are that you saw Abraham or Abraham saw you? He said, oh, Abraham saw me. I am. Do you remember the story of Moses? Moses is on the backside of the desert. He comes across a bush that is burning, but it's not being consumed. Out of this burning bush that's not being consumed, he hears a voice. It is the voice of God. And God says to Moses, Moses, first, take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. We're about to have a meeting, you and me. He says, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people. They're in bondage. They're in slavery in Egypt. I'm going to use you to deliver them out of Egypt and into the land of promise a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is a land that I have given them. And I'm gonna use you to deliver them. And of course, you know the story. Moses uses all of these excuses one by one. Ultimately, Moses says, well, when I get there, they're gonna ask me who has sent me. So who shall I tell them is sending me? And God says to Moses, tell them, I am is sending you. Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. Jesus arrives on the scene and multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am. And the religious leaders lost their mind. The disciples are overwhelmed. They're fearful. They think they may die. They've they've forgotten what Jesus just did, even though they have reminders. So Jesus arrives, and he says to them, I am. Do not be afraid. I am. 
What is Jesus saying to the disciples? If I'm with you, God's with you. So there's no need to be afraid. In fact, he, hey, if Jesus is with you, God is with you, and that's all you need to know. I am. Don't be afraid. I love that. I love that he reveals himself. I've said to you that each of the miracles have a message. Each of them communicate a truth. And certainly this is a truth about who Jesus is, his identity. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And when you have Jesus, you have God. It's his identity. He reveals in this miracle his identity, but not only his identity, but he reveals his authority by walking on the water. Can I give you a reference? Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Watch this. When Jesus walked on the water, he was not walking on the water as some outsider, but he is walking on the water as the creator of the seas and the oceans and the mountains and the fish and all of creation. He is God, and he has control and power over all things. There's a last thing that we need to see, and that is the sinking saint. John doesn't tell us the story. Maybe he's embarrassed for Peter's sake, but Matthew tells us. Matthew's account tells us, beginning in verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, I am, and I'll be afraid. But Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, trick question, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Well, it's kind of a trick question because Jesus said, well, of course it's me. I just said, I am. So Peter, come on, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, greatest prayer ever prayed, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, and saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. All right, quick math. Assuming all the disciples were in the boat, how many were in the boat? How many? Twelve. One got out, which left how many in the boat? Eleven. The reason I want you to understand that is because so often, honestly, we can relate better to the eleven than we can to Peter. Because 
our natural inclination is to remain in the boat, in the boat of our safety and our security. Let me ask you, as we're wrapping things up this morning, let me ask you a couple of questions. One is that what is your boat today? What is your boat? And by boat, here's what I mean. Your boat is anything that represents safety and security, but it is limiting you from God's best. What is your boat? What is that in your life that is that represents safety and security, but at the same time, it is limiting God's best for you. Hey, can I tell you what your boat could be? It could be a relationship. And as crazy as this may sound, it could actually be an addiction because you feel safe and secure in that addiction. It could be any number of things. It could be timid Christianity. But what is your boat? In fact, let me ask you this. As you identify in your own life this thing that represents safety and security, but it is, in fact, limiting God's best for you, here's the second question. Are you ready for this? How long are you going to stay in that boat? How long are you going to stay in that same boat? Now, we all know why we stay in the boat. We all know why we remain in our convenience of safety and security. We, do, we, we, we refuse to get out because of fear. Multiple times in Matthew's account, John's account, it says they were fearful. The disciples were fearful. Peter was fearful. I believe that when Peter got out, the disciples were fearful for Peter. There was a lot of fear going on. And it's the reason why you and I do not get out of our boats of security because of fear. And sometimes the fear is logical because, hey, if I step out, Pastor, this could happen or this could happen or that could happen. I could lose my job or this could happen there. You know, if I break up with that relationship that I know that is toxic and it's not God honoring, I could be alone. So some fears are logical. Some fears are spiritual. God's telling us to do something, and that fear is more spiritual in nature. So what I am saying to you this morning, that if the Holy Spirit would point out to you what your boat is, that he is wanting you to step out of, listen, I will tell you, I will confess to you, yes, the risk is real. Look up at me. The risk is real. So, Pastor, you expect me, even knowing that the risk is real, you still think that I should step out? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus is bigger. Jesus is bigger than your fear. Jesus is bigger than anything that you might have fear of. When you see that Jesus is bigger, your fears become smaller in comparison to Jesus. A couple of things and we're done. Two takeaways. Number one, step out. Take the first step. I don't know what that looks like for you, but take the first step. Um, I know you can picture it. 
I, I, I've always pictured this. When, when I get to heaven, Peter's one of those guys th- that I want to talk to. Peter, what was it like? Tell me what it was like walking on water. Because here's what I believe happened. I believe, of course, Peter, Peter begins to sink, right? The Lord grabs him after Peter prays the greatest prayer ever prayed. Lord, save me. Takes him by the right hand, takes him to the boat, gets in the boat. Can you picture Peter? He's, of course, he's wet. But he says to the disciples, did y'all see that? Did, did, y'all, did y'all see what I just did? I walked on water. And of course, you know the disciples. Yeah, but you took like six steps. To which you know Peter says, yeah, how, but how many did you take? Uh, Connor, my youngest, he was probably four or five years old. We were on vacation in St. Augustine. We were there all week. There was a big pool. There was a, a diving board. It was kind of up high, higher than a normal diving board. And every day, uh, Connor would, would try to get enough courage to, to, to jump off. And toward the end of the week, he finally, he finally, he finally jumped off. And when he jumped off, he began to, to jump off and, and swim and, and, and keep jumping off. I remember that later that day, I asked Connor, I said, Connor, what, what finally made you decide after all of these days to finally jump off? And here's what he said, I'll never forget that. He says, I just, I just decided to shove myself off. <laughs> I just decided to shove myself off. I think Peter just decided to shove himself off. There's a, there's a miracle that could take place when you decide to shove yourself off. God actually requires shoving yourself off. Peter shoved himself off. He walked on water. He called for the children of Israel to shove themselves off into the Jordan River for the Jordan River to, to dry up at flood time. You just see it all throughout Scripture. So I just would say to you, shove yourself off. Decide to take the first step. Number two, focus on Christ. You've heard the sermons. Peter got in trouble when he took his eyes off the Lord, when he put his eyes on his circumstances. So focus on Christ. Don't focus on your circumstances. Don't focus on your ability or your potential or your past because that doesn't matter. It's not about you. It's not about your ability. It's not about your potential. It is about the power and the provision of Jesus Christ. So focus on him. And he is bigger and he is greater than any fears and any circumstances and any storms that you may find yourself in. What do you need to shove yourself off from? What's your boat? How long are you going to stay in the same boat? And will you covenant today to focus on Christ? Let's pray together. I'm going to invite our worship team to come and to lead us in worship. As the worship team comes, I want you and I to enter into a time of prayer.
a time of decision-making. Now is the time of decision. Will I shove myself off? Will I take the first step? In order for God to do what only God can do, I must do what I'm required to do, and that is take the first step. Are you in the midst of a storm? It's dark. You can't turn back. It's out of your control. It's overwhelming. You're fearful. Trust him. Trust him. Remind yourself of those times he delivered in the past. The times in which he provided for you before. Focus on Christ. Listen, I know there's risk. I know there's risk, but Jesus is bigger. And when you get that, when you know that, when you believe that, listen, everything else, everything else gets smaller. So the invitation this morning as our pastors come is to trust Christ today. Be born again today. Begin a faith journey today. Maybe for some, it's to return to the faith, to come back into right fellowship with the Lord. I'm gonna invite our pastors here. The altar is gonna be open for you to come and kneel and pray. In fact, would you across this room, would you stand with me in the balcony? And the risers, let's stand together. As I begin to lead us in prayer, I want to invite you, even as I'm praying, to come. Some of you feel compelled to come and speak with a pastor, to pray with one of our ministers. The altar is open. But you come, even as I'm praying, you come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to make provision for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Lord Jesus, that even today, you still do the miraculous. You still move mountains. You still cause the lame to walk. You still raise the dead. Lord, I believe that the faith that is in this room, there's no telling what you can do. So Lord, we pray that in these moments as we bow before you, as we cry out to you, as we remind ourselves that you are bigger than any problem, you are bigger than any difficulty, you are bigger than any storm in our life. Jesus, you are bigger. Jesus, you are able. You are able. You are able to deliver us. You are able to calm the raging sea. You are able to say to the storm this very day, hush, you are creator. You are redeemer. And we cry out to you in Jesus' name.